All right. Good morning. It's a lot. Take a deep breath. Or two. <clears throat> um, we're in this series on the Psalms, and the Psalms are their songs, their poems. Um, we've been invited to think about important songs in our own lives and songs that, um, that meet us in particular seasons. And I don't know about you, but talking about the Psalms and thinking about music uh, takes me straight to Taylor Swift. Anyone? Um, mostly because I live with a, a, a rather serious fan. I was reading recently a piece by a psychiatrist um, in New York Times who said that a few months ago she started joking that half of the kind of um, the things that she would prescribe in her practice were uh, to, some, to, her, her, to her younger clients had become tailor-based, that she works a lot with adolescent girls, young women, and she said they've leaned on Taylor Swift as a kind of big sister through the daily agonies of being a teenage girl. Unsteady friendships, the 24-hour firing squad of the internet, and of course, the endless longing to feel seen and valued. And so at the end of her sessions, she said she, she found some solace in knowing that they'd have Taylor with them the rest of the week until they uh, would meet again. And, and in some ways, she's joking, of course, but um, I thought about the Psalms again when, when I read this part. She said, Swift articulates not only the treachery of bullying, but also the cruelty just shy of it that's even more pervasive. Meanness, exclusion, intermittent ghosting. And she says, borrow my strength, embrace your pain, make something beautiful with it, and then you can shake it off. Whatever you're upset about, the poet laureate of this generation has got a song describing that precise feeling. She's not going to solve whatever problem you're having, but she's going to sit with you in it until the passage of time does its work. You're welcome. <laughs> and I think this is a lot like the Psalms. I think this is a lot what the Psalms do for us. I once went to a youth conference where there was a game called something like Psalm of Lament or Taylor Swift Lyric. And they would alternate lyrics on the screen, and you had to guess whether, like, who had written it. Um, this proved to be a lot easier for the teenagers than the adults in the room. But I got to admit, like, a, a lot of these lyrics sound a whole lot like the Psalms. And I, I think there's something there because she goes straight to the pain. She goes straight to the pain. To be clear, I'm not wholesale endorsing her songs. Um, but she connects with that pain and with the range of human emotion. And this is what the psalmists have done for us. They've connected us with this range of human emotion. This song, we're going to be reading a sad song across a few thousand years, across a few languages, and without the music. So there's some interpretation we've got like to put to that. But I'm struck at how these words still meet us today in the very real circumstances and feelings of our lives and the prayers we just prayed and the song we just sung. 
a couple of weeks ago, I was um, doing a consultation for one of the big Bible societies. Um, there are several. I don't like pretend to understand all the differences between them, but it's a big international Bible group. And I was, I went into this, and I got to admit, like I went to their national headquarters outside of Chicago, way outside of Chicago, is literally in a cornfield. And I thought, um, I went in expecting a little more of a sense of like certainty or kind of rigidity among these people. Like these are the Bible people, you know what I mean? Like they, they really believe in the Bible, they know the Bible, they, this is their work is translating the Bible and putting it in people's hands around the world. And um, what I got, what, what I was struck by was humility. And I was listening to people who talked a lot about the humility of approaching the scriptures, of trying to make the scriptures make sense in today's languages around the world, including English. And um, I, I loved a conversation with one of their staff members who said, yeah, we have, we have like the print version in any given language, and then we have the live version, including English. And we're constantly making updates to try to help people understand. And I loved that sense of humility, that sense of God's word being alive and active and also that desire to constantly understand what this word has for us and, and what it means in the words that we understand and in the real circumstances of our lives. Um, and I appreciated that, that dynamic sense. And I think we could use some of that same humility as we approach this text in any text. So I'm going I'm to offer that this morning. Um, we have reasons to pray and sing and cry out to God and lament. And this is one of those psalms of, of disorientation when not all is right, when we want God to act, when we're awake in the night, and when we go through loss. So um, we're going to read this psalm, and, uh, and then we'll talk about it. I, um, yeah, it's 17 verses, so let's go for it. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God, have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I'm in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you've made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. 
I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever, for great is your love toward me. You've delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Arrogant foes are attacking me, God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show me your strength on behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. It's the word of the Lord. There's a lot here. Uh, In 17 verses, we find 15 requests of God, imperatives, many of them repeated. Hear me, answer me, guard my life, save your servant, on and on. Some of them over and over. Um, There's also a shout out to faithful moms. Appreciate that, right? There's some bargaining in here. God, do this because um, I will do this, right? But there's more. There's more. And this is a bold prayer. And a bold prayer to ask God to be God. Just where I want us to kind of sit today. This idea of asking God to be God, to show up, to be faithful, to be who God is. Um, Walter Brueggemann, in, in Praying the Psalms, an Old Testament scholar, he, he says that this, the Psalms in particular permit us to enter prayer as dialogue with God, as this interaction with God, not just one way, but, but back and forth. And that these Psalms give us language for the rawness of life, his experiences of being overwhelmed, of being devastated, and surprisingly, surprisingly sometimes given life. He says, Psalms offer speech when life has gone beyond our frail efforts to control. I think we can relate to that. Beyond our frail efforts to control. And this frees us to speak to God in our real voices, with our real lives, and honest about our real emotions. So we pray and we sing, Lord, have mercy, because we don't know what else to pray or to sing. And that's enough. We want God to save, to rescue, to protect, to keep us from experiencing pain. But we also trust that God suffers with us when we do go through pain when we don't feel like we were protected, um, when we aren't rescued, and when we don't know what to do with any of that. Um, I appreciate Kate Bowler a lot and her writing, and I've used this quote before. I'm probably going to use it every time I preach. But she says, so often the experiences that define us are the ones we didn't pick. 
the ones we didn't pick. We, we talk so much about choice. We teach our kids that their choices matter and life is about choices. And at the same time, that's only a half-truth. It's often the things we don't choose um, that shake us and shape us in ways that, um, that cause us to cry out, Lord, have mercy. And that teach us to depend on God's faithfulness. I was thinking about all this and um, thinking about uh, our first year of marriage. Um, sometimes we talk about our first year of marriage. We, we got to the end of it and we kind of said, well, we, if we can get through that, we can probably get through just about anything. Uh, we both were serving under really dysfunctional bosses. Um, uh, mine, I, I was serving under a pastor who I was serving as youth pastor and um, he had some undiagnosed and untreated uh, mental health uh, things going on that, that made work sometimes confusing, sometimes terrifying, um, and really complicated. Missy was working for an organization that um, she ended up resigning and writing a, a whistleblowing letter to their board because of some corruption and things that were happening. They're really destructive there, so we were like trying to figure out our marriage in the midst of really bad work situations. Um, we, uh, I, we, yeah, there were, there were a lot of things that happened. Uh, another one of those things um, was we got married in March, in October. Uh, my dad was, had an accident, fell off the roof of my parents' house, severed his spinal cord, and um, became a paraplegic. And we spent the next several months um, in the hospital with him. We were living close to my family at the time. Um, and it actually happened two days before Missy was going to submit her resignation, so we ended up with this kind of weird period of time where we were in hospitals a lot, and um, a lot of wild things happened, and, and we, got, we got to the end of that and said, wow, that, that was intense, and here we are, and, you know, maybe that gave us some resilience to sort of figure out life, and... Um, in March of 2020, we celebrated 21 years of marriage, and then a week later, um, everything shut down. And a few weeks after that, my dad died, and we didn't get to travel for that. And a few weeks after that, Anna's graduation got canceled, and on and on, and all the things that happened to all of us collectively and to us personally, and a year later, we said, well, if we survive that, <laughs> um, Maybe we can survive anything. Um, and then the next year happened, and it was harder. And then we got to March of 2022, and I think we stopped saying <laughs> that maybe that was harder. Sometimes the things we don't choose are the things that impact us, right, the most, and that push us to depend on God more. Um, and we need somewhere to go with that. 
We need somewhere to go with those times when we don't know how to make sense of what happens and what to do with it. And, um, and so often we go to the Psalms. And the psalmist has a turning point, but, but you, but God, but you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This, this but God is important. It's a powerful phrase. It's a powerful phrase in a lot of traditions. It's a powerful phrase in the black church tradition in particular, this hope that God will act even when we don't see. But God, that when we do see, we have a testimony, we give testimony for what God has done. And these words in particular, that God is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love, these are like a repeat track through the scriptures. These are words that, that in God's self-disclosure to Moses in actually the second giving of the Ten Commandments. This, when Moses goes back to God and begs for mercy, he says, don't destroy the people. And God says, I'm compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love. And the psalmist picked this up and repeat that refrain, repeat that refrain. And so the psalmist here uses this song that's, that's in other songs this place to go to when we need a but God moment. But God is faithful and compassionate and gracious and loving. This is what God is like. And we go there when we need a reminder of who God is and what God is like, and also when we need to remind God to be God. This is a really important part of lament, that in the Hebrew understanding of this dynamic with God, that it's okay to ask God to be God. It's okay to ask God to show up and act. To tell God to be faithful. Um, it's, it's a proclamation and a reminder. Sung Chen Ra is a Fuller professor, also a neighbor. And he writes about this need for lament as a practice of faith because um, it... It teaches us about God's faithfulness through time and gives us humility, uh, especially in the U.S. church where we have so much triumphalism and this need to, like, be winning. And, and he says this, God is obligated towards us in the scriptures. While Western concepts of obligation may involve a sense of duty that minimalizes feelings of love and affection... Like when we think about obligation, we think about that. But non-Western cultures move beyond a simplistic understanding of obligation. In fact, God's love is best revealed as a reflection of his fidelity, his faithfulness. One of the most important and consistent expressions of God's love is his hesed. And Josh talked about this word recently, this, this Hebrew word for God's faithful love, God's Loving kindness, God's steadfast love, these different ways that that gets translated. It's God's faithfulness. And we remind God that God has promised to be faithful, and we need God to show up and be faithful. 
and we can be bold in that. And in fact, the next verse goes on. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength. This idea, some, um, some translations say, it's literally turn your face to me. Turn your face. And this is also a refrain in the Psalms. God, turn your face to us. Have you forgotten us? Turn your face and have mercy. It's literally saying, God, look at us. God, look. God, why have you hidden your face? Why have you turned away? It feels like you're not paying attention. Because turning your face towards us is is about presence. It's about attention. It's about help. It's about favor. And we get that, right, in our own relationships. Like when, when we say, hey, look at me. Look at me when I'm talking to you. (laughs) We we look at each other. We turn our face towards each other. You know, I've been reading more about our epidemic of loneliness. And we talked recently about the Surgeon General's um, advisory about this crisis of loneliness. And about some of these connections between our distraction and our loneliness. And and Sonia talked about this some, but in reading some of the research, we just don't look at each other as often as we used to. Um, We're distant, distracted, together, but disconnected. Our devices have so much to do with this and how they train us to look down instead of looking at each other. Research shows that the very presence of a phone in a conversation, even if it's face down on a table, is a distraction and makes the other person feel less heard. And yet, it's been said that being seen and being heard is so close to being loved that for, that, for most of us, it's the same. It's the same. When we feel heard, we feel loved. When we feel seen, we feel loved. We need it. We need that connection. And so no wonder we want God to turn to us and look at us, right? God, look at us so that we know you love us. God, don't forget. Don't forget me. I think about Hagar in Scripture, the first to name God, the first to give God a a name in our Scriptures. And she gives God the name, the God who sees me in her distress, in her loneliness, in her abandonment. She names God the one who sees me. The one who sees me. She was not afraid to ask God to be God and to show up. Say, look at me, turn to me. This psalm starts in a place of humility in in the face of being overwhelmed. I'm poor and needy. And gives us the kind of prayers we pray when we don't know what to pray. Like a lot of us have felt the past couple of years. Like a lot of us felt, a lot of folks felt this week. There are enemies in this psalm. Um, There's a cry for deliverance. Unlike Taylor Swift, this isn't quite about retribution, but 
It is about rising strong out of the ashes of despair and defeat. And Psalms of Lament give us that gift. They lead us to a place of hope. Almost all of the laments have a turn where we remind ourselves of hope, where we remind one another of hope, where we hold hope for each other when we have a hard time doing that, and where we remind God to be God and ask God boldly to show up. The Psalms give us permission for all of that and any of that. Um, This psalm rests in who God is, and, and it's an appeal to God's character, God's very person. Last week in Confirmation, we were looking at Luke chapter 15. It's the story of three lost things and three finders. And Jesus tells these stories. They're all about, um, they're, they're parables about God, about who God is, about the type of God we have. And um, it's the story of the lost coin is one of those. Um, this woman who loses a coin. And God is like this woman who searches and searches and finds her treasure and rejoices with her friends. And then the story of the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one, who never gives up, who rejoices at finding the one. And then the story of the father who has two sons and one demands his inheritance, runs away, spends all his money, and the father waits and watches and rejoices when that son returns and also deeply loved the son who stayed. And Jesus tells all these stories together. Um, we reflected on this with, with our middle schoolers. One, one middle schooler shared uh, about, about God as this woman. Um, she was a hard worker. She didn't give up. She was persistent. That God's like that. Another shared about that that God is that father who never gives up on us. The shepherd who stubbornly goes after the one. The father who waits and watches. Um, God is like that. God is like that. And I think Jesus was echoing the hopes of this psalmist, the trust in who God is, that if God is like that, God can show up even now, even for me, even in the midst of my pain and despair and loss. And and that's where this psalm ends. Great is your love toward me. You've delivered me from the depths, and God, you'll deliver me again and again and again. Um, And with that, we're going to sing a psalm that echoes these words that repeat in the, scripture, in the scriptures about God's love and compassion and faithfulness. Uh, and as we do, I invite us to just sit with this today um, and to ask God to be God and to be faithful. Amen. Amen.